Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Rewind. Um, I imagine that for a lot of you, uh, like me, this was an extraordinarily unsettling weekend. Um, not only are many of us continuing to shelter in place, I actually, this weekend, I, a couple of times I thought, I really, it's time to get out, go to the supermarket at the very least. And then I just realized I didn't feel comfortable doing it. So I'm continuing grocery delivery. I remain pinned down in my house, as so many of you do. And on top of all that, uh, that meant spending a weekend watching the um, really extraordinary and uh, awful sights of uh, demonstrations turning violent, at least from among number of small, uh, a small number of people in demonstrations around the country. Um, but also some moments of hope uh, from the mayor of Atlanta, among others, the police chief, Erica Shields. Um, and we'll talk about all of that on today's show. Let me just update you on where we stand right now in the state of Georgia. Last night um, in Savannah, or yesterday afternoon actually, Mayor Van Johnson uh, participated in a large peaceful demonstration and um, he had some comments that I think are worth talking about when the panel uh, joins me in a couple minutes. Here's, here's just some of what Van Johnson said. He said, we've experienced a great day of peaceful demonstrations, necessary dialogue, at unity and solidarity. We want to continue to ensure the safety of our citizens, visitors, and the protection of property. This is an uncomfortable but necessary step in making that happen. And what he's talking about, he created a task force. And he said, this is a moment, speaking of the demonstration, what happens tomorrow is the movement. I think that's a powerful statement. He said, the new task force will examine by data every single disparity that exists in the city of Savannah, be it economic, be it health, be it social, be it police. Um, so that's Van Johnson. That comes to us from uh, GPB News, Emily Jones, uh, who is our Savannah Bureau down there. Athens, uh, there was peaceful demonstration of a couple thousand people yesterday, late afternoon and into the evening. And uh, there, uh, uh, athens Clark County Commissioner Mariah Parker, who actually organized the event, uh, said this, I believe that when we make our voices heard collectively en masse, we have the power to sway the policymakers who have vowed to make substantive change to black communities in Athens, in Georgia, and in the United States of America. Another uh, report from GPB News out in Savannah. And in Atlanta, uh, there were uh, lots of uh, demonstrators marching in the streets yesterday, late afternoon, and into the evening. Uh, there was not the kind of uh, violence uh, isolated violence among some people who were demonstrating that we saw on Friday and Saturday night. Um, it was largely peaceful demonstrators in the city. At 9 o'clock, uh, the Atlanta police did move in with other law enforcement to try to clear the streets at the curfew, and that was when there was uh, tear gas fired. Nevertheless, we didn't see the kind of destructiveness that we'd seen previously. All right, with all that in mind, let's bring the panel in. Uh, Jim Galloway, 
uh, lead political writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, who's my partner on Mondays and Fridays, is uh, back with us today. Jim, thank you for joining us for today's show. No, happy to be happy to be here. You know, in, in all that news, you it, it, it's on the back page in the back pages of our our Monday edition as well. You know, we saw the the first launch of a rocket from a manned rocket from U.S. soil on uh, uh, on Sunday, and it's just kind of secondary news today. It ha- yeah, it has become secondary news. You're absolutely right about that. Um, we're also joined today by a professor. Amy Steigerwald, Dr. Amy Steigerwald, who's a political science professor at Georgia State University and, as all of you know, a frequent panelist on Political Rewind. Amy, thank you so much for being with us this uh, for today's show. Um, we're also joined by uh, Howard Franklin, who is a longtime political consultant. He is Ohio River South is his uh, uh, a company, and uh, Howard it does a lot of government relations work and has been a member of the community here for a very long time. Howard, how are you today? Doing all right. Uh, hopefully you guys can hear me okay. Thank you for the invitation. Here you fine. Actually, we hear you very well. Um, and I'm very pleased that um, I spent some time over the weekend talking with um, Michael Thurman, the CEO of DeKalb County, uh, an elected official in many capacities in the state over a period of me- more than three decades. And really, I think um, both po- both sides of the aisle would agree one of the uh, outstanding leaders in uh, Georgia. Um, Michael Thurman, thank you so much for being here. Let me, if I can, Michael, start with you. DeKalb County, you were out uh, in the community over the weekend to make sure that you could didn't have any of the problems we saw elsewhere. And I think for the most part, you you didn't have uh, significant demonstrations, nor did you have any kind of violence. Have I got that right, Mike? Well, yes, but, you know, I I know what you meant, but some of the problems that fuel the demonstrations uh, in Atlanta and across the country, around the world, actually exist in the chaos. So everything that people were saying and was so enraged about, uh, we've experienced it at one time or another in the camp. Um, I'm just, you know, un, you know, very delighted that we didn't see the violence and the destruction, but I don't want to mislead you, my good friend or the audience, but anybody thinking that the problems that have been so clearly defined uh, over the last few days do not also exist in the camp County. Jim, I think Michael Thurman has really set up an important element of this conversation today. There's been an enormous focus over the weekend, especially on cable news, um, about uh, the violent demonstrations in some places, uh, the destruction of property. We saw it in Atlanta, particularly on Friday night, but but Saturday night as well. Um, But I, I really think it's crucial, Jim, to not set up a false equivalency here. And, and I'd love to start with, with your uh, commenting on that. And by that, I mean um, nobody wants to see demonstrations get out of hand. I mean, we all agree that, that storefronts should not be uh, set fire. We shouldn't have uh, robberies taking place in the streets. Uh, but, but if we focus too much on that side of this story, um, we may neglect to talk about the conditions that have led to that. And it strikes me, Jim, that both must be addressed 
or else we're failing to understand the larger picture. Why don't you uh, react to that and everybody can get involved? Right. I mean, that's. I mean, we're 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 kind of in the aftermath phase. I think we've had we've we've had the, the spasm of violence, and right now we 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 risk getting distracted by discussions of of the of the reaction rather than the 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 causal event itself. And you you saw that you you saw that debate in so many so many fashions, so many forms. You know, you saw it in in Raphael Warnock's Sunday sermon. At Ebenezer Baptist, you saw it uh, with, with with John Lewis uh, in in, uh, in 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 his Saturday night interview on MSNBC. Uh, Keisha Lance Bottoms, uh, the mayor of Atlanta. I mean, I mean, she 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 had a a, a terrific moment that just played through through the uh, uh, the uh, the weekend that that really kind of framed the question very well. I mean, it's you know. Uh, there was a line in that Friday speech of her that's, that that everybody is talking about, where where she noted that you know that that uh, that that Ti and and Killer Mike, you know, in her words, they owned half of the West Side. So when you burn Atlanta, you're burning. We're burning ourselves. It's it's self-immolation. But it, it I, I will tell you what what it, what that speech that, that 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 address also told me was that Atlanta. This is this is not just about race. This is about class as well. Atlanta has got a terrific and very large black middle class, something that Minneapolis does not have. Uh, there's a, a, a vast disparity there. There's there's a dis, income disparity here, but but uh, but you have a thriving black middle class that I think makes a difference. Michael, I want to get you back in and then open this up to everybody else, um, because I'd love to have you continue what you started to you, you, you alluded to, which is DeKalb County. You don't escape the problems uh, that fanned these flames. And by that, you're not just talking about what happened over the weekend. You're talking about systemic uh, problems, I think. Absolutely. And along with a thriving black middle class, uh, which I claim to be a part of, Metro Atlanta and Atlanta is the epicenter of income inequality in America. You have a disproportionate number of people of color and of all races who are struggling to survive. I think, uh, Bill, you said it as well as it can be said. And what we are seeing, in my estimation, is a divide. And, you know, I live where I sent my daughter to the best schools and I buy everything she could ever hope to want. But the reality is the disproportionate number, the great majority of African-Americans are not a part of the black middle class. And, and if you look at the crowd, you recognize that 30 to 40% of the demonstrators are not African-Americans. They're young white kids and, and Asians and Hispanic kids. And beyond that, I think, you know, we love Atlanta because, you know, we're very proud of it. But this is not just an Atlanta issue. This is a national crisis, an international crisis. And that's the systemic nature of it. It's not just a problem in metro Atlanta. It is a problem across this country. And we just can't solve it in metro Atlanta. Uh, So what we are seeing, and I a poor and, and totally disavow and, and, and encourage people not to engage in violence or destruction, uh, violence or hurting people is just not the answer. 
But in rejecting the violence and the destruction, we can't reject what the young people are trying to tell us. And what Mayor Van Johnson is really saying in Savannah, Bill, which you spoke to so eloquently, what he's really saying is we need to listen to what they are saying. We can reject the violence, which we should, but we shouldn't allow that to negate the fact that they are speaking to us from a position of pain and frustration and disappointment. Howard, I did think um, that statement by Van Johnson was so powerful. I'll say it one more time. He said, this is a moment, speaking about the demonstration, tomorrow is the movement, which is beginning to address the systemic problems uh, that exist and lead to uh, what we've seen. Howard? Yeah, I thought um, Van did a great job, obviously, and he also speaks with a degree of credibility as a former member of law enforcement and a black man in America who can obviously you know, embody intersectionality and say, I understand that law and order has to be upheld, but that people still need to be heard. And I think that's the kind of leadership we absolutely need. Um, and, I, you know, I applaud him not only for making the speech, but also for going to the center of the unrest, because I think you have to make sure people hear you, uh, not just to make sure that you said what your piece. I, I think it's also just worth noting that this is you know, in terms of civil unrest, this is something like a perfect storm. I mean, most of us have been cooped up in our homes for the last two months behind COVID-19. Um, and in doing so, a lot of us have also read about the incredible dis- disparity about how that disease has impacted African-Americans. And even while we're doing that, we're still, you know, getting news reports of people who are moving around um, you know, serving on the front lines in grocery stores and restaurants and, and elsewhere, you know, not getting the sort of care and attention they deserve from their employers. And against that entire backdrop, you got people like Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and obviously George Floyd being struck down by law enforcement. It, it's just it's a it's a power keg that is it's impossible to really appreciate how complex it is. And I do think to to Mayor Vance's point there's got to be a lot of listening before any solutions are put forward. I know a lot of my friends who checked in on me and family were asking kind of, you know, how is your solution oriented guy? What are people talking about doing? And I think we're still to Jim's point in, in this aftermath, still thinking about even appreciating all the complexity of how this is all unfolding. And I think the other part of it that can be sort of both, um, mind-blowing as well as infuriating is how much this is mirroring what we've seen historically. So, for example, in 1968, that's when, of course, we had the protest or the riot following uh, the Democratic National Convention and uh, other race riots. And after that, there was actually a report that was produced uh, about what happened there that talked about um, part of the summary uh, said, quote, the violence was all the more shocking by the fact that it was often inflicted upon persons who had broken no law, disobeyed no order, made no threat. These included peaceful demonstrators, onlookers, and a large number of residents who were simply passing through. And so it appears, it feels like we are reliving history. And of course, there's always been the old saying that those who uh, either don't read history or forget history are bound to repeat it. And it feels like we're repeating a lot of the same things over and over again. And while on the one hand, we can talk about gains that have been made, on the other hand, I think what is so difficult is that 
so many people aren't able to fully recognize or see in their own lives gains that have been made. Um, when we look at um, uh, CEO Thurman was talking about the racial uh, gap. So um, a recent study showed that um, between 1983 and 2016, the average white um, household had a growth in sort of median uh, income but went from 110000 to $146,000, whereas for the average Black family, it decreased between 1983 and 2016 from $7,000 to $3,500. Those numbers are staggering when we think about it in a broader context, and I think that that's also part of it is that we keep kind of forgetting about our history and looking back at the lessons that we really should have learned. And so in many ways, we're repeating exactly the same discussions that we had in 1954 and 1956 and 1968, et cetera. Jim, um, a lot of people have quoted uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. over the weekend and used him for the purposes that they feel are appropriate to what they believe about all this. I want to share just a little bit of a column that Roxanne Gay wrote for the uh, Sunday New York Times. Um, she starts it, by the way, by saying, and even during a pandemic, racism is as pernicious as ever. COVID-19 is disproportionately affecting the black community, but we can hardly take the time to sit with that horror. As we are reminded every single day, there's no context in which blacks li black lives do matter. But here's where she quotes King. She says, in a 1967 speech, Martin Luther King rhetorically asked, where do we go from here? His answer in part was this. Now, in order to answer that question, where do we go from here, we must first honestly recognize where we are now. And she says, indeed, we must, as Atlanta and this nation, reel through tumult of a level not seen in decades, if not a century. The dominant and driving cause behind the demonstrations now on American streets is a hunger and demand for justice. In another passionate speech, three weeks before he was killed by an assassin, King famously remarked that a riot is the language of the unheard. And what is it that America has failed to hear? It has failed to hear that the promises of freedom and justice have not been met. Jim? Yeah, and uh, all of that is all of that is true. And to, but to, to Amy's point, we, we are in a different place than we were even in 1968 think i think uh you know it you know in, in in 1968 you still had a you still had a a a, a middle america that was uh, and i'm speaking politically here uh but right now for for the ever, ever since then we have kind of edged to a uh, edged to a a a, a moment that a, a demographic moment for the control of the country and you're seeing you're seeing much of white America uh, try to tighten its grip, if you will. Uh, I, 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 I thought I, I thought that one of the, the 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 most awful sounds I heard over the weekend was was the silence out of Donald Trump in the White House. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it it wasn't as if he he there wasn't something to say. It was the fact that he could not say it, and and you know if if you listen to somebody like Mayor Bottoms, uh, and and many many other people, had he said it, they wouldn't have believed it. 
Um, I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, Tom, do we have the sound of uh, Mayor Bottoms on uh, Face the Nation talking about uh, responding uh, to the question about uh, President Trump? Let's listen to that. And then, Michael Thurman, I'd love to have you jump in. And this is so reminiscent of Charlottesville when President Trump just made it worse. There are times that you should just stop. And this is this is one of those times he's making it worse. This is not about using military force. This is about where we are in America. We are beyond a tipping point in this country. And his rhetoric only inflames that. And he should just sometimes stop talking. Michael, it's ironic that as we played that sound clip, uh, President Trump began tweeting again, uh, and Tom Faust just shared with me a tweet that he literally just put out. And this is what it says. Sleepy Joe Biden's people are so radical left that they are working to get the anarchists out of jail and probably more. Joe doesn't know anything about it. He's clueless, but they will be the real power, not Joe. They, speaking of the anarchists, will be calling the shots. And then he goes on and says, big tax increases for all plus. Michael? Well, you know, Trump didn't create the America we have today of income inequality and injustice and uh, disproportionality among people of color. He didn't create it, but he has weaponized it and he has leveraged it to gain power. It's what Jim Galloway is saying. So let's just put that in context. This pre-existed Trump, but he leveraged it in a way that we've not seen before, at least uh, not in recent times. But I want to go back to something, and I, I don't want to spend my time talking as a politician. I, I think I'll put on my uh, historian hat. First of all, what we saw this weekend is not new to America. It's not new to Atlanta. It's not new to Georgia. We've seen this, is what Amy said, we've seen this before. And the real question is, what, if anything, will we learn from it? Look, two weeks ago, and, and what we underestimate, uh, let's go with these kids. Post 9-11, these, these, these young, most of them were born right after 9-11, uh, grew into adolescence. They've been subjected to, 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 to a series of news events where gunmen came into school when they were school children and killed 20 and 30 children. Uh, they are the, the 9-11, the, uh, the, uh, the dot-com burst. They've been through all of these traumas. Uh, we had an expert to come talk to us last week. Uh, in mental health uh, and presented to a board of commissioners and myself, 45% of the population is suffering some type of emotional or psychological trauma as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. 45%. These are young people who who didn't have and won't have a graduation, didn't have a prom, saddled with debt, that they no job is going to help them really overcome in the immediate future. We have to hear that. And fundamentally change. The other thing we need to do, my generation, what they're also saying to us is you all did good, but you know what? These problems still exist. They're really calling us to task, whether we want to hear it or not. And it's not just black leaders, but they're calling all of us to task. Progress was made in the 60s, but we still have these almost intractable problems that have not been addressed. And so part of what many leaders are saying is it's not pleasant and, and, and it's hurtful at many levels, 
but we have to recommit ourselves to addressing these problems that's really threatening threatening America as we know it. And as a nation, we're going to have to rise up. We're going to have to reject the divisive politics that's kind of led us to this point and reject people who try to use it on the left and the right to their advantage. Um, Howard, so I want to ask a naive question. And Amy, I'd love to, I'd like everybody to weigh in on this. You know, there is a sense in which watching the reaction that we're hearing from a lot of leaders who are without question, I think, well-intentioned. This is a moment of time. We've got to use this to make systemic change. It's time that we grappled with uh, issues of poverty, of, uh, of, of, of uh, not enough uh, housing for poor uh, Georgians, um, uh, food deserts, bad schools, all of that. And there's a sense, Howard, in which it, it frustrates me because it reminds me in a way of how we react after there's been yet another mass shooting. We've got to make change. We've got to change gun laws. We've got to do, and then nothing happens. So, Howard, my question to you is, the rhetoric is meaningful, but at what point do we grab hold of each other and say, shake each other into saying, yes, we have systemic issues, and if we don't deal with them, we're going to be back here five years from now, ten years from now. What's your thought about that? Yeah, that's a really great point, and I think um, the thing that stands out for me from that observation, I think it's entirely true, is that more often than not, the obstacle to the sort of systemic change, or at least the conversation that might lead to systemic change, is typically a small minority in the middle, right? We've talked about gun control, which is what an 80 or 90% issue among Americans across this country. And most Americans, when polled, you know, for year after year, will agree that common sense uh, background checks and magazine limits, et cetera, are, are and should be public policy for this country. But then you get to, you know, this, uh, this obstacle called the United States Senate, where you've got just a handful of people who've decided that this discussion does, does not deserve a hearing uh, in the most august body in the Congress. And I think the big, the, the big takeaway for me from that observation is that it's not the echo chambers that are going to move this conversation forward. It's getting the people in the middle who hadn't considered all the impacts of, you know, uh, centuries of discrimination and oppression, of income inequality and failing schools, et cetera. Yeah, and I, I do think, um, and I'm not sure what's attributed to, whether it's you know the fact that we're all cooped up and looking at, looking at our televisions and our social media, or that there's you know so many vivid examples of exactly what's going wrong. But I, I've heard from a number of my white friends and allies over the weekend, you know, one checking on me saying, "Hey, are you okay? I know you." used to live downtown. I watched the video of the place I used to live and windows all busted out, et cetera. So folks first starting with, you know, well-being, but also acknowledging that, you know, there are discussions that are just, that have not been had. And that, that goes across the political spectrum. As, uh, as Mike said, I, I think that that's really what has to change. I think the, the first inkling of that change is how quickly this hate crimes bill, which was stuck in the legislature, um, a number of years running, and then obviously got a got a hearing, and 
and moved through one of the chambers earlier this year, how quickly folks have coalesced behind it in the business community and, 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 uh, and politicians of both partisan stripes calling for its passage as soon as we come back to the state legislature. So I, I do think that we're making some of that progress. Uh, I think beyond just on issues like hate crimes, we need on the thornier issues, the economic issues, you know, issues of longstanding oppression. It's going to take more of this conversation. It's going to take more, more commitment. And I, I think that's what I'm waiting to see um, actually happen. And then I think with the other thing, Amy, one of the people, yeah, one of the people that I've been looking to a lot actually is James Baldwin, um, who was a novelist and, and playwright. And he talks a lot about how we have to one of one of his quotes is that people cling to their hate so stubbornly is because they sense once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with pain. And I think that that's one of the things that makes this very difficult is that on the one hand, we have to recognize where people are um, coming from and where their things are and what it is that they themselves are trying to think through and the difficulty that many times um, acknowledging the inequalities means that we have to acknowledge both those who are hurting, but also the ways in which we're affected and we might have to move forward from it. Um, the other side of it is that um, Jim sort of mentioned this of the political polarization. Um, that we have this sort of immense political polarization. We've also had redistricting, which has really sort of reinforced that political polarization. And so it means that constituents are many times very homogeneous of who it is that elected leadership is listening to. And so therefore it becomes sort of, as Howard was talking about, really easy to sort of not act, especially if they've got a vocal group who's talking. So the other side of this, though, is what that actually means, what a lot of the political psychology literature points to, is the need, honestly, for leadership. Because when someone you agree with makes a statement that counteracts the thoughts that you're already having, that will push you to actually change how you think. It is when somebody who you, from the start, don't agree with that says something that is opposite. It's called motivated reasoning. You convince yourself of why they have issues, but if we have motivated re but if it goes the other way, leadership can actually help on that. And that's why, actually, at some point, we do, in fact, need the leadership to step up. We need Trump to, unlike the reports are saying, that he doesn't have a desire to try to bring the country together, that is what's going to be necessary, because that can actually help change the way that everybody is processing this. All right, I've got to get to a break. Uh, we got a lot more uh, to talk about, including the fact that um, we don't want to dismiss the fact that there was violence, that there was uh, tremendous destruction of property over the weekend here in Atlanta, across the country, and that no one wants to see that. But I think we need to put it in the context of the fact that now we have people on both sides uh, using the issue of those small minorities of people who were, in fact, looting, vandalizing, uh, either represented far left or far right groups, and even there the partisan divide seems to uh, rear its ugly head in the midst of this national crisis. We'll talk about that and a lot more when we come back on Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. 
Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Jim Galloway, Michael Thurman, Howard Franklin, Amy Steigerwald with me today on Political Rewind. Um, Michael Thurman, um, you're the CEO of a county. Uh, you did not have over the weekend the kind of uh, protests and to some extent some destruction of property that other areas of the city, of, of the metro Atlanta area particularly did. But I want uh, to ask you to respond to uh, this notion that we are now hearing people take sides in terms of who the so-called outside agitators were. So with that in mind, let's listen to uh, Mayor Bottoms on Face the Nation as she was asked the question about whether there were, uh, to the best of her knowledge, people from outside coming in to stir up trouble. Here we go. I want to ask you about something your police chief said at a press conference yesterday about some of the more violent actors uh, that we saw on Friday. She said they were part of a highly calculated terrorist organization. Who are the groups that you think are behind this? You know, I can't say who they are. I know that it was just, it was a, a very different protest than we are used to having in Atlanta. Obviously, we are the home of the civil rights movement. So we, we have a long history of protest in our city. But our organizers uh, in Atlanta, many of whom don't agree with me quite often as mayor, we're very clear that this, by and large, after things turned violent, um, was not an Atlanta-based protest. Um, it looked differently racially um, in our city than our normal protests looked, and it was it was just it was a different group. So we don't know who they were, uh, but many of them were not um, locally based. I'll say that. But when the Justice Department, when the Attorney General spoke, he said something about radical left. Uh, do you have any indication of organized groups uh, who are plotting in your city? No, I don't. I don't. Michael Thurman, um, what have you make? Uh, what do you make of this effort on both sides? Um, uh, the president has now said that Antifa. Is, a, is going to be declared a terrorist organization. It's an interesting thing to try to do. Antifa isn't really an organization. It's a kind of a col loose collection of people who are basically anarchists uh, who have come together in very loose way. Uh, so we've got that going on, and then we have others saying it's right-wing agitators. I think we may have lost Michael Thurman for just a minute. No, so, Jim Galloway, let me start you out. No, I'm here. Oh, you're there? I'm here. All right. Go yeah. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, go we, ahead and we all, respond. Okay, we, we, we have to be careful. Now, we know uh, three, four years ago, uh, there was Russian influence in a very violent event that happened here in DeKalb County uh, at Stone Mountain. So we've actually experienced that. It was after the fact, but it occurred. It was a violent event demonstration that was uh, helped organize and fuel uh, by Russian operatives. That's a fact. So that you can't discount that in this situation. Beyond that, we also recognize that, you know, it's not 1960, it's 2020. So we live in a virtual world. So who is in Atlanta? You know, one of my favorite sports teams 
that I follow every day is a thousand miles from here. So, and I know everything that the team does. I follow every player. I know who gets hurt. I know who's traded. So we have to now adapt to a 21st century mentality that people align themselves with cities and geographies and locations. People organize nationally. And I think what the mayor really alluded to is this is not an Atlanta movement. This is a national, international crisis that we are engaged in. And with the Internet, and you see it, think about Charlottesville, where all the white white nationalists who marched in Charlottesville from Charlottesville, no, they came from all over the country to that location. And so people will relocate to express themselves. What's most interesting is that you had leaders in multiple parts of the country saying the same thing, that these people aren't from here. And so the, the, the fear I have, have we been invaded by foreign operatives who are fanned out across the country? And the third thing I'll say is that, that if that is in fact true, we still cannot allow us not to recognize that there are people who, quote, live in Atlanta and live in DeKalb who are angry, who are frustrated, who are being discriminated against, who don't have food. Look, Bill, and I'll stop. Two weeks ago, I, 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 and I hadn't gotten over it, we had a food distribution here in DeKalb County at two of the local uh, high school football stadiums. Uh, and thanks to Gary Black, we were able to do it, get food from South Georgia to DeKalb. An hour and a half before the event was supposed to start, there were 550-plus cars lined up at one location and nearly 600 cars lined up at the other location. For anyone who don't believe that there is a crisis, that there's poverty, that there's hunger, frustration, and despair in metro Atlanta, in Georgia, and in America, they need to see what I saw. I saw a grown woman come up to me and said that I've worked all my life and I never dreamed, I never dreamed that I would be standing out here begging for food. That's what we're facing right now. Um yeah, yeah, it, it, yeah. Jim. I, I'm, I'm kind of with Michael on this one. I, I, I think the the outside agitator, uh, uh, storyline. I think is 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 something that could really distract us from from uh from uh, what's really happening out there. The you've got uh, uh, on Saturday, I believe it was Saturday. You had the uh maybe Friday. You had the 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 governor of Minnesota. Uh, uh, get up and say that they they detected uh, uh, far right uh, extremists uh, infiltrating uh, the protesters and 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 then but but if you read the the, the Sunday paper the the Minneapolis Star Tribune you saw that they were, uh, officials were quietly backing up backing off that they 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 did the, the facts were not there on the ground uh, and you've got the same thing happening out of the White House with with Donald Trump threatening to 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 uh, uh, to to de- declare uh, Antifa a domestic terror organization, as if you could, I, I it, which which would be kind of hard because Antifa isn't incorporated. I, I don't know that it's a <laughs> a specific group of people that could be targeted, but still, again, it's a distraction. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think too. Um, Emil- Go well, ahead. I just want to agree for a second with what Jen and Mike offered. I think you know. 
what we were attempting to bifurcate is the group of peaceful protesters who were trying to make a point, who were trying to draw attention, versus those who, and I'm sure you all heard the stories, I know I did, you know, broken the places all up and down from downtown Atlanta all the way past Buckhead. And I think there is some evidence that, you know, this was a mass of people that was very diverse, not only in where it came from, uh, as evidenced by some of the arrest records, but also in its intention. And I think, you know, to, to an earlier question that you offered, um, Bill, about the president's remarks, I think we got to be careful about what we believe our leaders are in, intending to accomplish. I, you know, I, I, all of us would love to have a president who um, would look to calm the nation in, in, this, in this moment and would look to offer some reassurance. But I, I think we got to be, we've got to watch what this president has given us the last three years and acknowledge that, you know, every time he's had this opportunity, he's used it for his own political gain. I, and I think we got to be careful about where and how we assign blame or responsibility to folks who are out in the streets, who may be protesting peacefully, or who may be out there just to cause trouble. So we should be clear. We got to get to a break. We should be clear. There are certainly Republicans and conservatives across the country, and there have been those here in Georgia who understand that it's time for systemic change, and they've made that clear. I don't want to let that go. At the same time, I want to amplify something that you just said, Howard. Here's a a story the New York Times reported this morning. Dan Eberhard, a Republican donor and supporter of Mr. Trump, said the president, with election looming in five months, is focused on catering to his core supporters rather than the nation at large. Trump is more divisive than past presidents, Mr. Eberhard said. His strength is stirring up his base, not calming the waters. Uh, And Robert O'Brien, the president's national security advisor, also quoted in that story, said the president would continue, quote, to take a strong stand for law and order, even as he understood the anger over Mr. Floyd's death. And I just read that because I think it amplifies some of what you said, Howard. Again, we know there are Republicans who really do feel strongly about getting to the root of this. It doesn't seem that the president is on the same page they are right now. Let's get another break out of the way and come back with more on today's Political Rewind. Jim Galloway, uh, I've spent the bulk of this show talking about the systemic problems that have led to the demonstrations we saw over the weekend, but we obviously don't want to let the show go by without talking about the tragic events that really sparked what happened here. Uh, That means the uh, death of George Floyd at the hands of a police officer who kept him on the ground with his knee on the neck of Mr. Floyd until he died. Died. Brianna Taylor killed in Louisville by police officers looking for a man who didn't even live in her building. She was 26 years old. Ahmad Arbery down in uh, Glynn County was not uh, killed by uh, police officers, but by former law enforcement uh, who saw themselves as making a citizen's arrest white people. So we can't let the show go by without referring to that. But Jim, that said, uh, I want to get your response to the action that uh, uh, Mayor Bottoms and her police chief, Erica Shields, took over the weekend when uh, last night they surprised the news media at a news conference by uh, po- saying that they had been reviewing a video, which, by the way, is now on the GPB News website if you want to look at it, of Atlanta police officers um, 
yanking two young students out of a car and uh, wrestling them to the ground, tasing at least one of them. Let's listen to how uh, Chief Shields responded to that. Our attitudes toward how we not only police our communities, but how we respond to policing our communities has to change. We no longer have the benefit of time. And what we see is that the very worst can happen very quickly. In the case of George Floyd, it can happen in under nine minutes. I am grateful that it was not worse last night. For as awful as this was, this could have been much, much worse. And so I, too, offer my apologies to the students and look forward to speaking uh, with them directly. Uh, I apologize. That was uh, Mayor Bottoms uh, responding. Uh, uh, Chief Shields uh, made a statement in which she said she knows these officers. She likes them as people, but she can't let that go on. Jim, that was a powerful message to send in the middle of all this. Right. And what it was was uh, the, these two students had had uh, recorded an arrest on, on, on one, of the, one of their cell phones. And then they had drawn, uh, dr- driven away and the, the, the officers chased them down. And pulled them out of their cars. Uh, and this is look. This is uh, we're talking. We, we've talked about uh, protesters uh, and, and the violence that they created. But you've got you know you're 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 seeing some evidence of, of a cop riot in various places too. Uh, I mean, we, across the country, you 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 saw uh, you saw journalists targeted, shot. Uh, in the case of of of, of uh, that CNN reporter. Uh, who's a member of Raphael Warnock's church, uh, arrested as he was broadcasting live. Uh, it is, you know, it's you have police reacting to the criticism that they're 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 facing in real time in a very dangerous way in some cases. Um, Michael Thurman, we have very little time left. I want to get you first and then see if I can get everybody else in. I'll try to. Michael, um, I got a number of notes from people this weekend who said, what can I do? Please ask your panel. And, and a couple of them were from white people who said, what can we do? Michael, what can we all do to try to begin making change? Well, Doc, we've been quoting Dr. King a lot this morning, as we should, because of his transformational leadership. But one thing he also said in response to your question, he said, the people who do the greatest damage are not the Klansmen and not the white racists, but it's when good people fall silent. And it's a perfect response to your question. When the good people fall silent, whether you're Republican or Democrat, conservative or liberal, when the good people fall silent, when these things occur, and we don't speak out. I mean, we can speak out today, but that's what you can do. You can speak out not on TV, but speak out at church. Speak out at your homeowners association. Speak to your relatives who have demonstrated uh, a disregard for others who might have a different color or race or creed. That is how you make a difference, just by establishing that in this house, where you live with your children and your grandchildren, that we're going to respect people and try as best we can to work together. Before I get out there, I got to say, though, one thing you can do is follow the leadership example set by Mayor Bottoms. Uh, she's done a phenomenal job in, in, a, in, in a serious crisis. So I have to acknowledge that before I get out there. Thank you, Michael. Howard, you've got your 
kids. How old are your kids now? I've kind of lost track. They're 10 and 3. And, of course, you know, they've been watching plenty of this as well. Okay, but the 10-year-old uh, obviously can watch it with cognizance. Um, what are you telling him about this? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, you know, we've, we've been talking about this, uh, especially Friday and Saturday, just trying to help him understand how dangerous these times are and, and you know, how to comport himself in a way that won't get him in trouble. Or, um, you know, I, as I know everyone on the panel and everyone listening has to understand, it's difficult. It's not like there's any singular message. But even the, the story about the students who were tased and pulled out of their car, um, I don't think he saw the entire video, but he may have overheard me mentioning that, that we share an alma mater in Morehouse College. And, you know, it's where our oldest absolutely wants to go to school. That's where dad went to school. And just thinking about or trying to figure out how to, how to present himself or present them with the fact that even a college student who's law-abiding could be subject to this sort of thing is, is incredibly difficult. It's something that's going to have to keep, uh, keep going on. So I wish I had a better you've answer. Got a, you've got a, yes, but you have a, a huge task ahead of you. More, you know, to, to try to help your young uh, African-American son understand how he fits into this community. And, and it's, a, it's a huge task uh, that I, we know you're up to dealing with. Amy, you've got a son. Who, how old is your boy now? Uh, he just turned nine, and it's sort of struggling with the same thing of both how to teach him about what is going on and where it goes. And I'm, I'm struck by there was a column by Mary McNamara in the Los Angeles Times today where she said, we're all horrified, but only white people have the luxury of being shocked. And I think that that's what we have to kind of recognize, that one of the most important things, and it's something I try to teach as a professor, is we have to listen. But listen doesn't mean try to figure out what you're going to say in response. Listening means actually processing what the other person is telling us and trying to understand their vantage point and their point of view. And I think that that's part of the issue, that as a white person, I need to try to understand better what someone is facing. I don't face the same issues when I walk outside, uh, and neither does my son, and that's part of what has to be taught and that we all need to grow from. That is about all the time we have. Jim Galloway, you have about 20 seconds if you'd like to make a concluding statement. We've still got to watch this develop over the weeks ahead, but go ahead, see what you've got for us for a couple uh, yeah, of seconds. Yeah, in, in real time, as we've been talking, uh, our friend Heath Garrett sent me a note of, of something that's circulating in the Johnny Isaacson circle. It's what he said after Charlottesville. He said, there are times in our history when we're confronted with challenges, and if we look the other way, if we didn't accept the challenge, it would cause us, in effect, to lose that republic for which there would be no replacement. <laughs> that's, a, that's just the kind of thing that we have come to expect from a Johnny Isaacson who uh, uh, look, tried to look so hard at uh, uh, working together with others. We're out of time. Amy Steigerwald, Howard Franklin, Jim Galloway, uh, Michael Thurman, thank you all so much for being with us today. We're going to continue our conversation about this tomorrow. We're going to reassemble the seat at the table uh, women. Monica Pearson, Christine White will join us to uh, talk about their perspective on what's been happening. I look forward to seeing all of you again then. In the meantime, take care and please stay healthy.